0: How was um, your Hall of Fame weekend? I saw you down there. It was cool catching up. Did you have a good one? Oh, it was awesome. It was um it was fun.
1: We hadn't uh done the beach house thing before, so that was kind of new. That was fun.
0: Fun hanging out with Ruffalo. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. It was uh you know what we on on, on Sunday after the Hall of Fame, uh, Andy Ruffle was uh, Eddie King for those um they don't follow on social media, Eddie King hires out a beach house and a lot of the guys go and hang out there for the weekend and have some beers, have some fun and uh, Andy Ruffle was out and in full full spirit, uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, decided to put the Kelloggs on and uh, I was just videoing these guys, it was Harry, Eddie and uh, Andy were just talking about, you know, going over some of the races and some of the famous quotes but yeah, it was was fun to me just watch you guys all laughing and giggling, you know, like, uh, like it was yesterday, you know, it was 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, it was funny. Um, the day before uh, Saturday, or when we got back from the races, I said, Andy, let's put on the Keluxer," because we, right. we were we were talking about it a little bit. Yeah. But I thought I thought one of the really the coolest things was seeing your sister and you sitting uh-huh. on that hay ba- sitting on the hay bale, being interviewed. Yeah. And then it, you know, I mean, then we're all sitting in the same room, and and it was just it was a really surreal kind of moment that you kind of go, wow, you mean, uh, we've been in this thing a long time. And, and that really kind of, kind of hit home. It was awesome to, to see that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And anybody that's ever, um, you have time to check it out. Please go to uh, the YouTube. Andy Ruffle has, um, and those of you that know Andy Ruffell, you, we are going to get a podcast with him eventually for the newer listeners. Andy Ruffle was, uh, the top rider in England He uh, was on TV. He was number one in freestyle. He was number one in racing and, uh, he was a host of a lot of TV and stuff, and uh, yeah, he has a great YouTube channel with a lot of his stuff that we we'll are probably talk about in this podcast. So uh, check it, uh, check all the Kellogg stuff out on his YouTube page, Andy Rufford. There's just some classic racing between the American pros coming over to the UK and racing with our our pros at the time. I was just a young 13-year-old kid, just uh, yeah, just being there and seeing all you guys was uh, yeah. I mean, it's still in, embedded in my mind, just uh, seeing all your guys. So yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more about the Kelloggs when we. Uh, as we continue this podcast, so I guess let's let's go back to the start, Harry. Let's uh, start at the beginning. How did you find BMX and uh, your local scene and everything? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Wow, that's um. Well, I was started on a Schwinn, obviously, like everybody else back in the day. It was, you know, 1969 or whatever, and and just learning how to do wheelies in the street and uh, f- had friends, and we'd make jumps and this and that. And I was like everybody else, just kind of a large motocross fan really big into Roger DeCoster and you know, all the guys, Garrett Wilson, all the guys way back in the day. And just, you know, you've heard the story a hundred times, but we would imitate those guys on our BMX bikes. And then, um, the local Schwinn shop, which at the time was Coates Schwinn in West Covina. Um, they started getting in, um, magazine called bicycle motocross news. And, um, in that were photos of, you know, the guys who really got this going. David Clinton, John George, Alan Underwood, Ramzinski, all those guys I was seeing pictures of. And I was just this little tiny kid who, you know, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to take what I'm doing in my street and learning how to, to do all that and go find races somewhere. And um, my parents weren't surprised. They, they, they i wouldn't say they were not supportive of it, but they if I was going to do it, I had to do it on my own um get to the races did it whatever it took and so once that magazine started to kind of sprinkle itself into my area, um, parks and recreation would kind of throw a little race on, and it was like in a baseball diamond at a school you know so i have to ride like 6 or 7 miles to this race and so then i won that one the first race and then cortez park put one on um gosh when matthew's motocross was really big and so all these guys showed up and it was that one was pretty hectic and so that's kind of when i started to race um then you know just kept reading and and always looking forward to the magazines coming out um And it was just, you know, and then you, you, you just read about Western sportsorama and the guys down there, David Clinton, Stu Thompson, Jeff will you know, the guys I already mentioned. And I, I just knew I had to get to where those guys were. If nothing more than to see them ride at, at the way I was seeing the pictures of those guys in the magazines. Um, it you know, and my friend and I, um, Pete Collins and I, we would ride and ride and ride and we would, we would buy rolls of Kodak film, uh, just 15, 20 rolls of it. And him and I would go shoot pictures all day long. And, you know, it was, you know, try to get the bike flat, try to do this, try to do that. And we would just take pictures and pictures and pictures and we'd take them to the little photomat store that was those little drive-throughs that they had back in the day. Mm-hmm. And we would drop the pictures off. We would drop the pictures off, and we couldn't wait to get those things back. And we would go through them, and then we'd buy more film, and then we'd go shoot more pictures. And so that kind of really got me into, you know, buying better bikes. And, you know, then my first trip down to Western Sports Cinema. So, yeah, that's kind of how, how I got sucked in.
0: Now, I only really, you know, we, we started getting the magazines – probably 82 81 81 82 and, and you know you was already kind of you know when you first came to the uk you was already diamond back and you already had you know number two on the plate um how long then did you go from amateur to to pro that's one little bit i don't know too much about you you know
1: um well pro over here started in 1977 and there were eight founding members and bob helly and you know he kind of and stew and those guys and um you know um john george and all the guys i've already named there was eight of us that kind of started pro and um up until that point like when i rolled into western Sport- Sportsrama for my first race ever it was 14 and over expert and my first moto at that place i had david clinton Stu thompson jeff botima and alan underwood <laughs> <laughs> and you know and i'm looking at these guys going "Whoa, okay These guys are in the magazines. These guys are, you know, the guys I want to beat or at least become as good as I thought they were at the time. Which, you know, if you ever saw a picture of David Clinton way back in the day, he was always perfectly dressed. His style was clean, you know, and the photos of him were just incredible. Um, So I cut my teeth as an amateur Riding for that bike shop I mentioned, Coach Schwinn for a while. And then JM Cyclery was a local – Jim Melton just had a bike shop. That's all he was. He sold at the local swap meet here in Glendora or Azusa. And a bunch of my friends and I, every Sunday, we'd get up at 4 in the morning and we'd ride up to the Foothill swap meet. And the first place that we would go to, and I didn't know it at the time, was Jim's spot Cause he always had the coolest stuff. And so that's when, how I met Jim, I rode into a shop one day. Um, he, he said he was putting together a bike shop team and I said, Hey, can I be on it? And I think I was a third or fourth member. There was David Cooper, uh, Dennis Foster. And then I think I was the third guy on the team. Um, and then JMC cycle returned into JMC, he started building frames so in 77 is when Pro kicked off. And so I started riding Pro. I rode for JMC. And then it was, a uh, BMX was starting to take off here, especially the Pro class in 79 and, you know, late 78, early 79. And there was money to be made if you got to the races. But you had to get to these events. And I didn't have a car at the time. I didn't have anybody that would, take me to the races um jim did everything he could getting his riders to the shop or to the races but he couldn't afford to get me to the races that all the other pros had sponsors to get them to and i felt like it was time for me to you know make make a decision on you you know put jim on the spot and say, okay, I gave Jim a list. One day I came in, I uh, brought Jim a list of races that I said, Jim, I'd like to go to these events because this is where the pros are going. This is where the money's at. And I'm, you know, I'm a pro. I have a pro license at the time. And he said, I'm sorry, but I can't get you to those events. Now, during this time, I was working at JMC and I was welding forks for JMC. Um, so I was an employee and I would ride to work every day and, and do my work and then ride home or go to the tracks or go ride or whatever. And so at that moment, when he said he couldn't take me um, to the events I wanted to go to, I said, Jim, then I I need to quit the team and find a sponsor that – would get me to the events and Jim Jim understood he had no hard feelings at all it was um, he, he you know he wanted everybody that was on his team to succeed and move on and and be what they could be so the first race I went to was a race at Canyon Country and I raced without a C. jersey and I told the announcer that I was looking for a sponsor and at that time, Sandy Finkelman was there with the task from Mike Bobrick and Mitchell Wiener to who were the two owners of Diamondback at the time, to put together a factory race team titled Diamondback. And so he, you know, because I raced locally quite a bit, Rancho San Diego, you know, down where Wills and Things was and Corona and all the tracks that mr rink had put together sandy knew me and knew of me and knew that you know i had whatever skills i had at the time and he saw something in me that he said you want to write for Diamondback?" back and i said yes and so it was uh it was that's how i made the transformation from you know basically a nobody onto a team that spent millions of dollars promoting the writers
0: oh absolutely and <clears throat> I guess we can get more into the, as you can, you know, we've got a lot of Facebook questions and a lot of asking about the kind of the money side and stuff. And yeah, but, but what kind of a deal was that then? Like a pro deal then when you first went to diamond back, was it, was it big or what, you know, what kind of support was you getting from them?
1: Uh, it was, you know, was it big at the time? If it, it was big to me, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I have another really, really good friend, uh, Rick Wilkinson who, you know him and I and, and Pete and we would we didn't drive anywhere we rode everywhere and when um, one day I showed up I was riding for Diamondback I had got a sponsor I was riding the Diamondback bike and I was still riding to work and working at JMC welding JMCs um, which was cool you know Jim was fine and I mean. I'm riding, you know, Japanese product and he's building American products. So it was kind of a funny little deal. You know, you you know, he the perception was in reality was the the craftsmanship and the quality in a JMC was better than that in a Japanese made Diamondback. So it was a little funny thing we had. But I, um, I showed up late to work one day and he fired me. (laughs) 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 so which is you know you you know he can't show favoritism maybe if I was still in the JMC I wouldn't have been fired I don't know but Uh anyway so my buddy and I we I go what should I do you know should I go get a job or should I give this pro thing a chance you know now that I was on Diamondback and he says you know it's been your dream you wanted to race bikes and you wanted to be in the magazines and and so on and so forth. And I said, "All right, we'll give this pro thing a shot." And um, so, you know, when I got dime back, it was I think fifteen hundred a month or something like that. I mean, it's it, oh, good it, for uh, you know. I was eighteen or no, I was twenty at the time. I think
0: so. This is like nineteen eighty-ish.
1: Exactly nineteen eighty. Right. And uh, I think it was April of nineteen eighty is when we really got going. And so that deal. I mean, you got food money your airline tickets showed up in the mail. I mean, you would have three weeks of airline tickets on your counter, you know, and getting to the airport and, you know, and every rider had their own bed. We never had to share a bed. Nobody had to ever sleep on the floor floor. We got food per diem. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And, you know, everybody, you know, I had a contingency set up first, second, third. And, um, so it really took me from a neighborhood, uh, let's say, Hot Shoe, you know, in the San Gabriel Valley to a national level pro. Now, I didn't at that time, I didn't really know how to race as a pro. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a whole different ball game. It's a whole different world. It's pretty cutthroat at that time. So Sandy and I worked really hard together to teach me how to race. Mm-hmm. So, cool. So.
0: What about, because you guys had a lot of co-sponsors, at least on your, you know, uh, again, I'm not looking at any pictures of you this second, but like Muscle Power, Vans, were these people like, we heard rumors, you guys had, you know, Grips and stuff, Oakley Grips or Amy Grips. Were you guys getting good monies from uh, these guys as well?
1: All the co-sponsors that were on the, the pants and the jerseys were Japanese, product uh, sponsorships that were on our bikes and all that money went right into the team okay get to, it. to fund the team
0: yeah yeah uh,
1: which enabled you know um, to pay me to travel us all over um, you know and then the side deals that we could do like the Oakley factory pilot deal that I got mm-hmm. um, was kind of more just me. So to speak, and then I had MXL at the beginning, and of, which was a monthly fee, and and some of these other things that kind of creeped in. The Mino Helmet days, that was extra money for me, and
0: um, but all those co-sponsors, that money went into the team to fund the team. Yeah, no, I get it, totally get it. Um, what about like Vans? Then were you guys all, you know, all the obviously you guys were all running Vans back then. Were you guys all getting paid by Vans, or that was kind of a team type, you know, team deals as well? Uh
1: Vans was contingency money for for me was I got to be in the Vans ads, I got to, you know, get contingency money on first, second or third. Obviously, you know, as many free shoes as you wanted, whatever you needed. Um but that was more for the pro. And the one thing that was really cool about Sandy was that he really believed One hundred percent in a pro, and what pro represented or a pro rider represented to a team. So he would, you know, take and use me to sell in the entire team to like Vance. Right. If you if you take
0: Harry, you get the entire Diamondback team. Got it. Got it. Yeah. 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 Totally get it. No, that that definitely makes sense. Um, So yeah, I guess you guys were were doing good already. Um, so you had number two on your plate when I first, familiar, you know, familiar with it. We'll talk about it uh, coming up. You know, and talk about the Anglo American Cup in Redditch. But so you was number two to was that to Greg Hill or to Stu? Uh, it was to Stu. I'm pretty sure it was to Stu. And Greg was three, um, I think. He has a lot of numbers. He has lots of pictures with uh, three on GT. So maybe was at the top. Yeah. The okay. Yeah, that
1: was um, ABA uh, number one, two, and three, and then. I was also number two in the NBL. So for the, in the same year, I
0: was
1: number two pro in both sanctions. Stu was number one, and I think Greg was number one in NBL at the time, or Eric Roop was. I can't remember who was, but I, I pulled the number two plate at the time. Yes.
0: Yeah. In who was both your, sanctions. Who was like so your fierce rival in this first couple of years then, just I guess all those guys you just mentioned, right? Yeah. Um,
1: I kind of created my own mess, I guess. Um, (laughs) because I learned I learned the hard way that if you're if you're not taking spots from somebody, somebody's going to be taking them from you. And so you know, I would take a spot, and I would take it however I could take it. And so you know, the the guys that were always in front of me, like Stu, you know, he him and I raced each other pretty hard. And you know, he he is obviously who he was, and and it forced. Everybody else to to do whatever they needed to do to remain at his level and you know keep up with that guy. But um, you know, back in the day, everybody was end up, you know the NorCal guys, um, the Ronnie Anderson, Brent Patterson, um, and that group that came from up there. They were they were pretty fierce competitors coming you know wherever that we ended up in the same moto, Um, you know, and then racing like John George, David Clinton, until they, Bobby Encinas and Neil Bonds. And, you know, I remember going to um, the Valley Youth Center in Van Nuys. And I mean, I was afraid to go to that track because those guys, you know, you had Encinas, Kramer, uh, Bond. All those guys had that track so wired that you try to walk into their world. And it was it was a great learning experience at the time. Got my you, ass handed to me.
0: You guys were all kind of cool, like you, Greg and, and Stu were all pretty much friends though, all the way through it, right? Yeah, you know, we were. We,
1: you know, like in any sport, um Just left it on the track. We we yeah, we had our moments. I mean, uh I it was funny, there was a, a series, California Cup series, that you down here and it was you know, it was all I believe it was the seventies, late seventy nine or something like that. That you had to qualify for you had to go race all these these races um local events you had to be in the top five or ten i can't remember but the last race was held at western Sports Arena. and if you've ever seen pictures of the first straightaway there really wasn't one you started out of the gate and you hung a left it was it was crazy and i had it was the last qualifier i had lane eight and I had all the guns inside of me, right? And I had started to do a two-pedal start back then, and so I hole shot it from eight, and I just I cleaned everybody's clock. Everybody <laughs> fell, down. everybody, everybody fell down. And um and this guy Coy, and these guys guys that I've had run-ins with before, Coy Hudson, Stu, Dennis, Dan. I mean, the big dudes all fell down, and they were pissed, <laughs> right? So I finished the race. I win the race. And the way Western Sportsorama was, um, you crossed the finish line, and then you kind of swooped down into turn two, and you kind of made your way back, and then you went out, right? So I win the race, and Stu apparently got pissed that I took him out. He hit me so hard <laughs> in, <laughs> in the second corner. He, if there wasn't a fence there, I probably would have flown 15 feet. <laughs> and then you know they all were waiting for me out in the parking lot all of them and i didn't i didn't go out until they all left i just sat there and waited <laughs> so those kind of events kind of put everything into perspective of who you can mess with who is going to mess with you and then how you dealt with it um at the time so yeah we we all kind of got along
0: mhm so your first trip to uh, the u k was uh, and it's it's big in our history nineteen eighty two was that your first international trip then, or had you already traveled a little bit before then Harry No, that was my
1: first you know plane ride overseas. Um, we had a, a really good Diamondback distributor over there mm-hmm. and a good and a good sales guy and um, Diamondback was really huge on promoting um, bikes brand personalities and image into bike shops. And so when part of the deal was to get to Europe or get to England, do the races, but the races were more secondary to the purpose of being there. Mm -hmm. And my results would always kind of show that, like I believe I got my, I got my butt kicked over there by, andy patterson pretty much every event but i really wasn't there racing to make money i was there to promote diamondback and be be the guy they were paying me to be and we did a lot of bike shop appearances and i got pictures somewhere of hundreds of kids at bike shops that we would go see you know you do the silly things the wheelies the bunny hops and but that's what diamondback was really big on and we did so much of that here in the states back in the day
0: and we still see, and again, I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of pictures in mag- English magazines and books and stuff, where you know, so much media or, you know, magazines. And we had a lot of books as well back in the early 80s, and you're in a lot of stuff you've probably never seen, and a lot of that is documented. What I did get a couple of days ago from one of my photographer friends, uh, Mr. Paul Bliss in the UK, he connected with uh, a photographer, friend of his, who was actually shooting the Anglo-American Cup in 82 with Um, You know, you battled with Tim March and Tim actually won and uh, Paul's actually sent me a picture. Now, I think it's the first corner. It's uh, Tim's out front on GT and you're on the floor. Can you recall that? I should have sent you the picture first, really. But uh, can you remember what happened in that main event and crashing and getting beat by Tim?
1: Um, (laughs) Well, Tim was like 22 feet tall and I was 5'6". And, you know, I probably wasn't giving him any room or trying to take the space he was in. And being the little guy, I probably just got knocked down. Um, but that probably
0: pissed me off. It and, also, This <laughs> picture also looks like, again, I'll, I'll, I'll post this picture soon as well because I've asked Tim a couple of questions on it. I thought it'd be cool because, actually, obviously, it's the first time a British rider had, you know, gone against an American pro and, and beat him. So, obviously, that's huge for... Our little history, um, but in this picture, I think Charlie Litsky looks like he's in this picture as well, with a Mac shirt on. And I know there is pictures floating around of him being there with you. Uh, I think um, there were some amateur riders there as well, Shelby James maybe, Gary Ellis maybe, as amateur was in Redditch as well. Um, yeah, I think it was the first real sighting of um, U.S. pros um, in the U.K., which is which is cool. And yeah, yeah, for our history, a lot of people still talk about Redditch. Um, You then came back and raced the 1984 Kellogg's and then back again in 85. Tell us some of the stuff from, uh, you know, what you remember from the Kellogg's days, Harry.
1: Uh, Probably the biggest thing was all the guys that we technically or that we, I technically hated. We had to ride on a bus with (laughs) and, you know, and, you know, share hotels, room. Uh, You know, Eddie was, Eddie and King and I always shared a room, so but just kind of being being the guys that we were paid to be and treated like royalty when we came over there and you know the the Kellogg series was just you know decades ahead of its time as far as promoting the sport and putting tv putting the sport on tv and you know it was it was really cool to to be with the guys you know basically 24/7 you know we would get on a bus and there'd be 12 14 of us and we'd have to um check our egos or sit in the back of the bus or not check our egos and you know cuz <laughs> all our bikes go underneath the bus and you know you got to take care of your bike and you know it it taught a lot of us how well taught me how to keep emotions in check and learn about the other guys because part of as you know part of the sport is understanding the mental psyche of who you're racing and what what makes them fast on that day and what you can do to not make them as fast that day. And so there was a lot of mind games going on and it was a very great learning experience. Um, you know, Eddie King and I would, we'd finish the day and, you know, we'd go back and we would talk about the day, you know, and, and um, we would discuss every single moto, you know, and he would discuss if, if he was watching me, he, him and I would work on me, you know, your gate was this, your, this was that. and, I would reverse the scenario for him because that's what Sandy was San, that's what Sandy was for the entire Diamondback team. So Eddie and I learned, you know, okay, let's we are here for the same purpose to represent Diamondback. We're not here as Harry or Eddie, but if we can help the other win, then we've achieved the Diamondbacks goal of, you know, leaving the event as the winning bike brand or, or whatever that is. Um, so then we would talk about each rider. You have this guy, this guy, whatever his cranks are too long, his gears too easy, whatever it was. And we were able to, as the, as the event went along, we got a little better every time out. You know what I mean? Because we were focused on, on results and promoting the brand.
0: In, 84, uh, 84- you uh there were six races, I think, uh, during the series. Um, and a thousand pounds for the win per race, which was uh, pretty good, I think, for, for British prize money. And for 1984, 85, a thousand pounds was pretty good. And I think you guys were racing every day. Um, you actually ended up winning the last round, which was round six. You hadn't won a race up till that point. Had uh, some, you know, thirds and fourths. Uh, but I don't know if you can remember, you was uh, you was winning. Brian Patterson passed you um it was a long track he passed you over a set of doubles you rode him he jumped him um and then he crossed the line first but then he was disqualified for jumping the gate which is clearly everybody can see if you ever watch the show or the, the starting credits you see that do you remember much about that uh, in particular race harry yeah clearly it because <laughs> i think i was starting um to the left of
1: brian mm-hmm. i think yes and i mean you know i'm pretty good at going with the gate. That was one of my I think my timing was always really good, consistent. And I left good, Mm -hmm. right? Because even though he jumped, I still got to the corner before him. That's how good my that's how good my gate was in that race. Mm -hmm. Because I knew I knew okay, I hadn't won yet and this was the last chance to win. So and I was really bad at you know, I would always chance start in a main Uh when the you know when the gates had the exact same timing you could risk a little bit you know by going a tiny bit earlier or whatever and i would always try and chance my start whatever it was i would take a risk on it and it usually bit me before but um you know i flipped a lot of gates i spun a lot of times in pro mains where if i had been patient and let my race develop like it normally did throughout the day i probably would have won a lot more but that wasn't the point you know, being ahead of Brian and at that event and then watching him go by me, I knew that the guy just jumped the gate. So I'm <laughs> still going to win this thing. Right. <laughs> but, you know, at the at the end, you can see you could see the camaraderie from everybody. Um How, you know, when we first got there, we were all kind of on edge a little bit. And then as we were on the bus, we all. We really became great friends out and at those Kellogg series, not mostly because we kind of had to, you know, because we had to see him. We raced them every day. We had breakfast at the same place every day. So you just developed that. But the footage of that main event and watching Brian say, I didn't I, jump the gate.
0: I admit it. I jumped. And then, the, yeah. then he
1: sees the... <laughs> and then he sees the footage, and he goes, all right, all right, I jumped the gate, you know, and so it was, you know, just, it's just great stuff. Yeah, and
0: and people from the 80s, you know, guys, everybody remembers that, you know, and obviously we can see it online on YouTube and stuff, but, you know, those quotes are, uh, you with major pain when you crashed at Wigan down the first straight, and Brian Patterson (laughs) admitting his jump. You guys came back again in 1985. The UK guys had kind of stepped up a little bit, and we finally had our first, Pro class in 19, uh, 1985, 1984, they kind of get you guys separate from the UK guys who race superclass, you guys race pro. 85, a little different, the top guys in the UK got to race against you guys, and um, obviously our iconic win for the Brits with uh, guest shooter winning the first one in the rain. I spoke about it numerous times with Tommy and uh, you know, Eddie when we're always uh, BSing and bench racing. Um, what did you think of the that, you know, coming back and, uh, you know, third time for you that the level of British riders, obviously with Andy, Tim, guest shooter, and uh, a few guys starting to, uh, yeah, you know, the, we're starting to get some good guys coming through on, on our side. Uh, what was your view on all that?
1: I, you know, coming back was first off the events, the event was so professional, you know, they had the four starting Hills and they had two gates on each Hill You know, we didn't have to travel, we did everything at one place, and the venue for the event was, you know, first class. So to start off like that, just to come back to what the first Kellogg series did for the second, and the value that they saw in investing that much money in a venue was incredible. That motivated all of us American guys to go, wow, you know, and you know like you said you weren't getting a lot of the magazines early on and so now all the magazines have caught up into Europe the American pros who were there the year before i'm sure a lot of the kids that had that weren't pro that year in 84 turned pro and we as a group all of us left a pretty good impression to some of the uk guys and they just flat stepped up their game you know they if you know they wanted to beat the american guys and all of you guys that stepped up and trained and looked forward to the event and then when the chips were down seth hole shotted and basically blew us all away and it uh, uh you know it caught everybody off guard everybody you know Amer- you know you, you come up with an excuse why and this that <laughs> and the other thing and and but you know he flat smoked us um you know, and and everybody stepped up their game. It was just, it was great for us to come back and see that, especially the
0: venue. Yeah, and then moving a bit further into into 1985, and we'll go on to questions in a minute, Harry, on Facebook. But I, wanted to, I, I wrote this one down because I thought it was a good question, and I've watched the video myself. I wasn't there. 1985 World Championships in uh, Whistler, Canada, you was absolutely on fire, and Jason Donnell picked up on it in one of his questions, he wanted to, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that because it looked like you was the favorite going in. You was winning. I think maybe you won the pre-race and you was just whole shot in all day and somehow you just dipped out and lost the title to Ellis. You want to give us your thoughts uh, on uh, that?
1: You know, Danell, he, he hit the nail on the head. And here's here's there's a little backstory to that whole thing. Um, we, I believe, you know, Diamondback put us on tour every year right? So we had just, and when you're on tour, all you do is ride your bike and all you do is focus on racing and practice and training. And, and that's all you do. You know, we, we had a pretty tight training program, team Diamondback, the guys that were on the road, Eddie, Doug Davis, myself, and any other kid that was on the road with us. We didn't take everybody. So it was really Doug, Eddie, and myself. And then when we got Hayden and, and Rick Palmer, they stayed on the road, but we had just come off a summer tour leading into that race. And so I was probably as fit and as ready as I've ever been for an event. It just happened to time out that it was Whistler. Um, and yeah, so I won everything on the first day, the Canadian national champion, whatever that means. I still got that trophy from that event. And then, yeah, it was cool. And, then on Sunday, it was – or on the World Championship Day, um, I won the first main. Ellis got third. Ellis won the second main. I got third, or it was first and – I think it was first and second. So we were tied. We were tied with three points going into the third main, and I got lane eight. And if anybody remembers that that track and that turn, it was treacherous. It was like – if you look at the the bags and everything – thing that outside of the fence, it was a 60 foot sheer cliff into a river. I remember reading that, you yeah. know, no, yeah, it was crazy. But him and I, Gary and I got to the corner side by side and, you know, I got shuffled back to third and he won that third main. And so he won the title and I got second. Um, but I was running, it was really cool. I was running a biopace
0: 42 there oh wow yeah
1: so uh you know nobody knew it but that biopace on that gate for some reason it was unbeatable you know and uh it just worked and it just kept working and kept working until you know the the lanes decided to finish pretty much you know which was that's how the sport works you know it's just the way it is and um it was in one of the early motos of the day um I had the whole shot and I was on the outside and, and Stu was in my race and I was coming across, you know, cause that's Stu. He ain't going to give me any room down the corner if he gets there before me. So I guess, you know, I, as I was coming across my hip, hit his handlebar, he crashed, broke a collarbone or, um, or something. I can't, I, I just know he got on a plane and he left cause he got hurt. He couldn't even race, which probably, changed the scope of the day maybe a little bit because you never count that guy out but what i always thought was and nobody ever knows this that he uh for some reason when he got to lax and got to his car in lot c because that's where we parked my car was near his car and he, he left me a note and he said you know that's racing you were going really fast hope you had a great weekend Stu. And that kind of stuff, you you don't, you know, that really builds a lot of respect.
0: Yeah, classy.
1: You know, even, yeah, total class act right there. And so those kind of things built a mutual respect between him and I. But, you know, the event was what it was, but it was in Whistler, Canada, and that place is incredible. So, mm-hmm.
0: All right, let's go into a few of these questions. Um, we got a lot, so I'm not going to be able to... We'll probably have to come back and do a part two, Harry, but uh, we'll try and breeze through as many as we can. The picture I posted on Facebook, and, and we can get into this one as, as, as some people comment on it. I posted a picture of you at the finish line. I, I think it was in BMX Plus, maybe, or Super BMX. There's a picture of you at the finish line, and you're just getting absolutely mobbed. These kids screaming. Well, screaming. Looks like they're screaming. Hands are out. Looks like they want some free, you know, whatever they can get from you. And it's uh, just like full rock star status. Um, and what. I said in there, I don't feel like it's it's like that these days, and um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about that, you know, the picture and, and the difference maybe from that to what it is today for the pros, uh, maybe the social media a few people commented on, maybe, you know, the oversaturation of, you know, everybody just seeing the, everybody every day, we didn't see you guys, only time we saw you guys were in the magazine, so yeah, give us your thoughts on that maybe before we start the questions, Harry.
1: Um I think that event was in Louisville or Knoxville, Tennessee. It was the finish line area. Obviously, it was after a moto. And during that time, you know, leading up to those events, you would cross the line and you're, you'd basically get mobbed. You had to like, I remember guys just dropping their bike and get like getting away from it. You come back and anything that was removed was removed no matter what, if it wasn't bolted, it was gone. And you kind of, you kind of knew that, you know, as long as you got out of there with what you needed to have for the next weekend or the next day, you're all right. But those, those times, I don't think will ever exist again, unless something changes. Um, social media is great. It's instant, but it's segmented by ages. I mean, we, uh, Patty and I, we do a lot of market research on just asking questions. You know, okay, what age group is on Facebook? The old guys. What age, The old guys. Yep. What age group is on Instagram? The young guys. A little bit younger. Mm-hmm. Then you got Snapchat and then you got Twitter. Mm-hmm. But the kids that if you look at the kids in that photo and the age of those kids in that photo, they don't have access. They still don't, they still don't have access to social media and are, there's no direct connect anymore to, um, you know, mommy bringing her three kids into a grocery store and saying, "Here, wait at the magazine rack and I'll come back by, you know what I mean? And then in the rack, there's three or four BMX magazines that kids can thumb through. Um, but the people that are are seeing the pros and today are, you know, Facebook people, Instagram people. And they're they're not, you know, the super fanatic kind of person that's going to go up and act like that. You know what I mean? Unless we do something as, as an industry or as a group or whatever, it's never gonna change back to that. And it's, that was the beauty of Diamondback. They spent so much money. I mean, we would run two page spreads, three page ads, inside back cover, inside front cover, you know, and I got 30 to cover shots through the years. Unbelievable! That's so amazing. And that was that was something that was my goal. I a lot of guys wanted championships, right? They just they were so driven to race to champ. I just wanted to be in the magazines.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I wanted pictures. I wanted to be in the magazines uh, because that's what got me into the sport was seeing guys in the magazines, and I just wanted to be in the magazines, um, and so. You're seeing like that picture is so powerful, not just for me. That could have been just as easy Stu sitting there as it was me. It was just uh, the photographer at the time. I think it was a BMX action shot. They just captured that moment that that to me that defines the state of the sport at that time, which it the sport is healthy. There's that whole discussion going on. The sport is healthy. Can it be better? Of course, everything can be better. But I think the pros like Connor Fields, you know, the, what he's done for the sport. Um, Patty and I were at the bike show, and Connor Fields is not even being used. He was sitting in the ODI booth. But here's a kid, Vegas local. Gold medalist, Olympic gold medalist, and nobody is capitalizing on what this kid has done and what he's capable of doing if somebody markets him correctly for the sport. And that was kind of sad to see. And those are those are the opportunities that we miss and we know we've missed it because we've lived it. You've lived it. You've won the world championship. You got to experience what that did for you the whole entire next year as the reigning world champion, that was huge. You know what I mean? And to and you were lucky you had good sponsors too that took care of you, promoted you, and got you the accolades and you know made you who you are to do what you're doing. The program that you offer out there is incredible and what you do for the sport.
0: I appreciate it, Harry. Yeah, no, I you guys are still like, for me and, and my era, you guys were that, you know, we, we got a bit of the magazine stuff, I was not really uh, known for my style, so I didn't get as much magazine stuff as, you know, you probably, uh, you Neil Wood, Robbie Miranda, you know, obviously Brian, Alan Foster, and those guys, but uh, you guys were really, like I say, you just said how many covers you had, and I mean, it was just, you know, just, can you even remember what's your favorite cover? Because there's just so many iconic shots
1: Probably the, the best one, the one I love the most is the Leary, mm-hmm. Diamondback Leary on the cover that is just perfect. I mean, there's no photo editing in that at all. That bike, it's level. It's perfectly level. Um, and just the background, um, Casmus shot that. And we have a friend over from Australia, Nathan uh, Gray is here. And he's sitting here with Patty while we're doing this interview. Um, and so he's, you know, he's the biggest Diamondback fan in the world. And so we walked over to Honda Hills, which is you know, not far from where we live now. And so we went up there the other day and just kind of walking around and, um, you know, looking at the different shots that took place there and the angles and the backgrounds and just the feeling, you know, being up there is is pretty cool. So it would be that picture would probably be my favorite.
0: And I think Hayden had a cover there, obviously, probably uh, the the next year in the 90s, I seem to remember. I think Hayden maybe had had a cover on Snap, maybe, I think from Honda Hills, pretty sure. Uh, Yeah, and and I posted one of Stu. Stu got a cover
1: there. Him and I shot. He would come, and him and I (laughs) would ride together there all the time, Stu and I. And so BMX Action came up and shot us both that day, and he got a cover, and I think I got a cover you know, after him or before him, I can't remember, but that all happened that same day.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's real history. Um, all right, Harry, let's start breezing through some of these questions because there's some great questions. And uh, yeah, we can, uh, I'm sure we'll go back to these uh, little subjects at the same time. A lot of these guys ask the same stuff. So we've got one here from Greg Sutherland. It said, Did you ever have any offers to leave Diamond back? And was you ever close to taking one? Always. In the early days, Offers all the time,
1: but never had, uh, never even considered them. And then once everybody realized that, you know, I'm a, uh, corporate dude and I'm not going anywhere, they kind of went away, you know, because I just said, no, 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 no. And I never used those offers to leverage Diamondback for more money or something better I kinda just kept them to myself and it was more um it was more flattery to me. But there was no place that was as good as Diamondback. And leaving them would have been the worst career move that, you know, could have made. Um and there was only, I think, one
0: guy who left that capitalized on
1: it. That was Pete. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh. Um, yeah, what was the the deal with that thing? So Pete was obviously younger than you, and he was on Diamondback, I think, uh, just from watching the video. The Tropicana Hotel, I think, he's a pro with Andy Patterson, and he's on Diamondback. Then, so what? Pete obviously, you know, left did, as he was coming through the ranks. He he already knew that you was kind of stapled as the Diamondback guy, and that's why it didn't work. Or is he any other story to uh, Pete not being on Diamondback? Obviously, you and Eddie was kind of the the real big names, but Pete was obviously the new guy coming through.
1: Um, We, Eddie and I always knew Pete was going to be incredible. Mm -hmm. You could just tell, I mean, there's a picture of Pete at Corona when they ran that double downhill with the big, huge double jump, right-hand turn. And there's a picture of Pete doubling these doubles and nobody doubled them. It was crazy. And he's doubling these these jumps. And it was at that moment you go, uh-oh. This guy's going to be hard to beat when he turns pro. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was. But it was the perfect timing for Pete to to go. You know, Eddie and I were the guys um, We we had already, we would do a lot of things for the company that some of the other guys just Didn't want to do, you know, traveling to the bike shops, doing all that stuff because it it took time. And, you know, you you know, you weren't at home training. You had to give up a few days to go do these things. But Haro, you know, or Pete needed to and was deserving of making good money. And so his career was patterned off of making decisions as a stepping stone to get to that Haro deal which he made a lot of money at.
0: Yeah, I'd love to get Pete on at some point. He actually, I, I stayed with him. Um, and he actually told me how much he was making. And I think it was 1985 as well. I was like, wow. So, Pete, if you're listening, yeah. I would love to, uh, I'm definitely going to tap him up for one because I know he's got some great stories. All right, we've got some questions here. Carl Hughes, um, he, he listed a few great questions, so I'll just at least try and get a couple of calls. He said, what was the best bike you ever rode? I mean, are we talking
1: from, like, yesterday, or are we talking back in the day?
0: I guess let's do both. Let's do, uh, you know, early 80s, and then uh, as of we speak today, because, we, again, we'll talk more about it as we get into it, but you're obviously still racing and riding now, so I guess you can give us both. Uh, the Diamondback, the Turbo at the time, that bike
1: was solely developed, um, not solely, but you know, the team had a lot of input, Eddie... Uh, myself and Sandy at the time and that bike was designed to do everything that it did good. Um so we, we were we were that bike at the time was state of the art for me.
0: What was the top um, tube on that?
1: Short. <laughs> really short. And it's funny because uh Patty and I went to Australia last year and they put together this huge retro race. And they built me a 84 turbo over there to race. Nathan did. And I got on that bike and I could not come out of the gate. The thing was too, it was, I'm thinking, how the heck did we ever ride these? How the heck did Stu ever ride these things? Because they were all around the same length, 19 inches or 19 and a quarter or whatever it was. But, um, so for there, you know, and bike geometry and bike designs have paralleled the advancement in track design. You know, you couldn't ride a 19 inch top tube on a bike on a track that we're riding today. It just, so things evolved based on adapting to what they needed to be ridden on. So, you know, to answer the question from early days, it, it would be a DB, you know, the turbo. And now, um, this thrill that I'm writing for box and fly, I've never ridden anything like it. It's, it's incredible to ride now that's not saying that you know i know i know that there's other brands out there that are probably as good or better and i've been limited to what i have been able to ride um i know for a fact that you know the bikes the chase bikes are probably pretty awesome um i would love to try chase carbon or whatever um you know, supercross their bikes when I was riding for them for a bit of time were incredible to ride. Um, so you know, carbon bike haven't ridden one, but I bet they're pretty awesome.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, another quick one from Carl, and then we'll move move on to some of the guys. Um, so I thought it was a good question. What's the best track you ever rode? Again, I guess you could say back then and today because you're still you're still doing it. Probably um, there was a track in Connecticut. Bethel
1: Supercross. I think that's still going. Up
0: there? I think that's still going.
1: It is still going. It is still going. And uh, back, we were on the, the motorhome tour at the time, and that track, um, we, you know, just, there was just something about the way it was in the trees. And, you know, I was always huge, because I was a huge motocross fan. So dirt, I loved certain kind of dirt. You know, loamy dirt that you needed knobbies for. I loved tracks like that. Um, and so the Bethel supercross track had this, what, you know, I'll just call it special dirt. And it was incredible. The way the jumps and the flow, there was a bridge. Um, and so we had a national there, an NBL race. And so we were in the motorhome. So we stayed and went back to that track for, you know, two or three days and just rode. And so that one really, you know, has a a place that I love to ride at. But, um, you know, the tracks now, Chula Vista is pretty incredible. We just did the Gold Cup down there, you know, and the fastest track operator in the world has a pretty good handle on that place. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Shout out to Tyler. And,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I would love to go down and ride that thing with those guys, you know, you and you, those guys and try and kind of bridge the gap a little bit of where I am and where you guys are. Cause that place, if you, if I could get it down and get the flow, it would probably feel pretty incredible to ride. So well, I'm the prob- same.
0: I'm the same there as well. I, if I don't go there regular, I feel bad. Like I, I'm there a lot in the summer doing my camps, but like now I do not go to the track much. I'm just kind of a bit burnt out from all the camp stuff, but I'll slowly start, uh-huh. you know, get into it. But I literally have to go to like Kearney and Cactus for a couple of sessions first before I start going to Chula Vista. If I'm kind of getting regular again, just cause yeah, you, it's hard to go in there if you're not riding that much. Cause yeah, it's, it's uh yeah, but it's super fun so
1: right you know. and then you show up and you know you got those guys who you know that's where they live and you're still Dale Holmes right so you're there's a certain level of expectation and so you can't go in there unless you're polished a little bit
0: right <laughs> yeah no I go I go like how try I go to Saturday because like the pros aren't there on a Saturday I, <laughs> if you go on a Tuesday you're really exposed you know because everybody's everybody's there so um uh, yeah no no definitely yeah well i think good good choice there on current track um all right another question i guess we'll tie it in with one of carl's and colin styles says the same thing and we could this could branch off into a 30 minute answer but i guess you can give us your your tidbits on it uh they're talking about the current state of racing carl says you know you see that he sees a negative you know online uh, how is racing really in the states, and uh, what needs to, as Colin says, what needs to make uh, BMX great again, or maybe, uh, or maybe it's already peaked.
1: Wow, yeah, you, you're right. That's about a. That can be a huge. It's been a discussion for all the years. You know, how can everybody wants it better than what it is, and I don't know. Being, you know, you got all this stuff going on. True data, false data. <clears throat> the fact is, we, we, you, even your camps, anybody that teaches a clinic, any local track operator is selling a product to people. Racers are buying, when they show up, they're buying a product. They're buying a race. They're buying a track. They're buying a place to ride. They're buying a track operator, who is got a great place to hang out. The restrooms are clean. All that stuff becomes a product that everybody has an opinion on. Everybody, don't go there. This guy is no good. Don't go to that track. That track set. But okay, so the environment in which local track operators work within, they have a responsibility to themselves and the riders within their area to maintain their track like Tyler Brown has done to Chula Vista. And I'm not, I'm just talking about that one because we've already talked about it. But clinics, guys who teach clinics are selling a product. And there's a lot of guys out there who are teaching that have a different way of doing it. They offer, you know, you got the Berman Academy, you know, with Jason Carnes, who is probably the best guy going, you know, with the image that he presents at the events at the Nationals with the big, huge rig and all that stuff going on. He's putting out there a very professional looking product for people to look at and go, you know, if the training matches the product, that's where we want to go. And so if some of these guys that are doing clinics are their numbers are down. It's because a combination of maybe the track they're going to isn't like a Chula Vista. And then the product that they're offering to the people that they're trying to come in and pay to be the clinic. There's better places to spend your money and get clinic differently. So if we're judging the health of the sport on those two things, it's not accurate and it's not, default of the sport. The I look at the sport in three different series. And if you think about state series, Gold Cup series, and National Series, each one offers a different level of number plate or a different prestige factor or a different level of commitment. Financially training, rider quality, all of that stuff, okay? If you take, and it's a, it's changing now a little bit. Like, I always thought, you got the State Series, the Gold Cup. Like, we just had the Gold Cup Final down at Chula Vista, and people were talking about the MotoCamp, okay? Well, I think that the State Series has exceeded the level of prestige that a Gold Cup Series has. Because you look at State Finals, they are... Like Bakersfield had 100 and something motos or whatever they did in their state race. And so the prestige of what's going on, it goes Gold Cup State National. So if you look at you need to only race six, you take your best six to go to the grants. So everybody is talking about, well, why are they putting races here and not here and less here and more over there? They're trying to get everybody – give everybody the ability to get their six in and go to the Grands, which is just – which is the most prestigious series, you know, there is in the USA, and the numbers reflect it, 758 motos last year. So if you look at, you know, going and getting your six – and when you get your six, you're done. Or you go and you got you need to go throw out a couple bad scores. So you go get one more weekend, two more races, or whatever that is, so that you can go to the grands with six good scores and then compete in the hottest race and, and you know the biggest race, the greatest race on earth. Seven hundred, there'll probably be eight hundred motos this year. Yeah. And you know, and to, to me, that. That's a successful business plan by the USA BMX. I mean, they have developed a pretty good series that, you know, you're going to race it. You're going to get your scores and you're going to go race the best in the world for those nag plates or the pro plate or whatever you're there competing for. So I think the sport is pretty solid. Um, Can it be better? Of course it can be better. Um, you know, and this goes back a little bit to coverage, you know, right now there's the pull magazine shows up at everybody's house. That's a member. If you're not racing and you're not a member, you don't know about the sport. You can't walk into a liquor store as a kid and, Never have been exposed to BMX and pull a BMX magazine off the shelf, off the newsstand, and that's your first exposure to BMX. You have to go look for it if you know about it, and then you have to, you know, if you get lucky and find it on social media, your parents have to find it because they're old enough to be on Facebook, you know, because that's the demographics that we're talking about. But – is there a place like what you do with your program Dale is probably one of the best things that the sport has as far as grassroots and there's a lot of other people out there doing it if we're talking about making the sport better that's what has to happen and if we need if we as riders and old riders and corporate people can take it upon ourselves to do instead of you know whining and you know arguing on facebook you know about the health and and all of this stuff if we go out and willingly and knowingly put out the effort to promote it it's gonna get better in our areas you know what i mean
0: mm-hmm. no totally agree i think uh, everyone's just got to do that little bit and uh yeah, I think there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good things, and a lot of people doing good things that you don't see because they're just not putting it out there on, on social media a lot. What, yeah. what, what, what? I, you know, I guess I get a little bit bummed out when I, you know, USA BMX send me a bunch of magazines to give away at my camps, at the start of my season. So, um, I give, you know, every week I give them, you know, hand out magazines to every single kid in that camp, you know, that particular week. And, uh, sometimes, you know, the kids will, will take the magazine and they'll, they'll, you can see they'll start reading it straight away. And some of them are like, no thanks, don't want one, you know, and that mm. breaks my heart when, <laughs> they, when they don't want one. More, more guys do want it, but, um, it's just different times. Like I say, it's, uh, how people consume their, their information, you know, their, their sport or right. whatever they follow, you know. So yeah, it's definitely a, a debate that could definitely get deeper. Um next question here from Mr Todd Lines the wild man this got quite a bit of traffic on its on its own within the thing and uh he says what's the most money that you've made in a year i don't know if you don't want to give us these numbers harry you don't have to uh, he says what's the most money you've made in these years um you know he says for some reason the pros always seem hesitant to talk about how much money they made and obviously todd definitely doesn't because he put his whole spreadsheet on how much he made in the last 10 years from the good years to the, the bad years. It was pretty cool. Todd did that. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if you want to give us any any thoughts, maybe your best payday uh, in one weekend or kind of money that you, uh, yeah, was making. Again, you don't have to answer that one if you don't want to. Uh,
1: best year was 70K, roughly. Mm-hmm. Best race was um, Murray World Cup. It was a $25,000 purse. And one lap, I won, and I got a $5,000 check.
0: Awesome. Yeah, he, and I
1: and I had to punt Stu Thompson over the first turn to do it. So got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, I always harass him about that one. But yeah, that was you know I don't because you know even back in the day, back in the day, um, everybody said you know Pete's making more money than all you guys. Okay, yeah, was the facts to that you know? we know what we're making. And if he did perfect, he deserved it. But that's what the problem is. The perception of what guys should be making and the reality of what they made. Mm -hmm. And so, and whenever I set my contracts up, it was, I wanted to get paid on uh, contingencies, you know, first, second or third, getting in the main event and being on the box. That was what, and that got me in magazines. And so Covers paid a lot of money and full page ads, full page color pictures paid a lot of money. And so I was always building jumps and always picking up the phone and calling John Kerr or Osborne's or Gork when he was working at BMX action. I got a new jump. Come on out. Let's see what we can do. And boom, we'd get a a cover. Um, So it's just, we can, drive and create our own, you know, destiny and, and where we want to be and what we want to do.
0: It's going to be a shame like if, you know, social media just all of a sudden, I don't think it will, but one, you know, it, maybe it will. One day we'll wake up and it'll just be puff, it's all gone, Instagram and Facebook could all kind of disappear like MySpace did. We never thought that would, you know, really thought that was going to go on forever and ever, but it seems like everybody's history now, or the current year of riders, their history is, is within Instagram, Facebook, um, it was funny, I was um, at Haro a couple of days ago with uh, John down there and James Ayres, who was uh, assistant editor of Snap, and James had some old magazines there. He had some BMX World magazines from the mid-2000s, and uh, he had a whole bunch. So John picked one up, I picked one up, and James had one. And we all got the magazines, one each, and it just went silent for like five minutes. And then I just looked up, and I'm like, we're just all, were just so into it, you know, and started talking about the pictures and stuff, and, you know, just the nerdy... BMX kids that we were and still are, you know, but I guess today's um, kids aren't going to experience that, you know, which is, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird, you know.
1: And that goes back to that picture that you posted. I mean, I'm I'm a motocross freak, fanatic. I mean, you know, fanatic. I am that. And I love motocross magazines. And I have, there's three that I can look at right now, motocross action and two racer x's that I will go through it almost every morning to kind of just kind of look at ads, you know, look at and just read about the bikes and motocross action is great because Jody Weisel is the editor and he talks about stuff that you, that's cool. And that's what, like you just said, there the, there's not that magazine that's in the bathroom next to, to the toilet that, you know, you pick up and read. Like I have, We, uh, Nathan, Patty, and I, we were all out at um, the Lake Havasu House, and I have a box of my magazines that range from 1976 all the way until, you know, the last few BMX Action, BMX Pluses. And Nathan sat there all day long just kind of thumbing (laughs) through and and showing me pictures that I never even remember seeing of myself in these magazines because we were so caught up in in the racing and doing what we're doing that you don't always get to see every picture like you said and these were the american magazines you know and um but anyways yeah i i agree i think you know it's it's sad
0: that part of it's sad mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to say todd's money because i thought it was funny when he posted so in 1993 <laughs> todd Lyons made uh four thousand two hundred dollars in a year and then he got on horror it went up to 1994 he, he went up to making ten thousand dollars to 25 to 50 then he got on Huffy during the the good times of the 90s. He went from 70,000, 80,000, 90,000, 100k, 90,000 in 2001, and then in 2002 the Huffy program got dropped, and uh, Todd went from 90,000 to 20,000 riding for Truvative. or uh, I think it's Truvative, Um Anyway, South American uh, Intruder, Intruder, South American brand. So. It's pretty cool there how Todd's numbers went, uh, climbed up, and then fell right at the end. And uh, obviously, he's back on a good train now with all the good stuff he's doing at uh, SE. Um, all right, so let's move on to the next one. Uh, a couple more. I've just um, lost where I was. Caesar, San Diego Caesar asked a little bit about uh, if you could talk about the Diamondback, you know, the deal. We've already kind of spoke about that Caesar. So let's keep scrolling down. Um, there is one here from, I don't know if one a friend of yours. Pete Michael, he says, uh, all the pros combined weren't, were only probably making about half of what Mike King was making, racing 17X. Now, I, I, I know from when we did a podcast with Eric Carter, who was saying during, you know, the Terrible 10, the Top Hams, you know, the King, Carters, and those guys were making some good money, but surely it wasn't anywhere near where you guys were making, right?
1: You know, again, that's, that's hearsay. I mean, to take the statement of... All the pros combined weren't making as much as yes. Mike. I, I don't know if anybody knows how much Mikey was race making, but he was riding for Haro at the time. And so the, the funds were there to pay him a lot of money. Uh, and he obviously deserved it at the time. Um, but you know, I, I don't know where that that matters that much because the guys, the pros, we were all, you know, sustaining the household, paying the bills, um, you know, doing. We the the racing was our job, and so we were, you know, doing what we needed to do to 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 make money.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of guys were asking questions. Cruising, I'll just name check a few guys: Cruising, Chris. He was asking about you know the kind of money that Ellis Foster, Leary Hill, uh, Chris Meeker said. Uh, you know, what would the, maybe the pros ride uh, make him then compared to now? We, nobody really knows what. I guess everyone thinks Mariana is making a, a lot of money in the millions. Not sure how, if it's literally millions, but um, you know, as regards to U.S., you know, prize money and sponsorship, um, I would think it's probably the 80s and 90s guys where it's all on par with maybe you know Conor, Cor- uh, not Conor Corbin, uh, Conor and Joris are probably making really good, good money right now. And then uh, yeah, some of those guys with international national team deals, we're not really sure. Um, so let's carry on scrolling down. And that, you
1: know and that was in direct reflect to the value of the dollar back then. You exactly. know, what was a ga- what was a gallon of gas back then? 89 cents. Right, yes. Yeah. So you know, really so everything's got, you know, yeah, everything's got a, you know, you know, it's relative to the times too. So Mhm.
0: Uh, let's see down. We got a name check from one of your former teammates, Jason Wharton. He's just saying how great it was to be on a team with you and everything was taken care of and there was just awesome time so shout out to jason, um, what up, jason? uh jason robert pierce a 90s guy wrote for power lights uh so he's mentioned a little bit i'm just kind of scrolling down here because there's so many we just Rob, you
1: more. know what's cool is uh sorry dale robert pierce and i had a pretty cool race um we were up at pal northern california and uh It was a pro and he was leading, and it was long track, long, 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 long track. And last straightaway was, it seemed like it was forever. And so I kind of pedaled past him and kind of looked over at him. And it was just funny. That was a moment. There's certain moments with certain riders that you just remember. And that was a moment where Mike Redmond, I could hear him on the PA going, okay, it's a long straightaway. Who's going to be the tired one? And and then he referenced me being the older guy, and uh, I wasn't tired as I pedaled past Robert Pierce. So that was kind of funny. We just those kind of things are really cool memories to have with with riders.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, so we got a few guys here. Les Les Watchman is a UK guy. So we say major pain. So obviously he's quoting the Kellogg's. He just shows how how much impact all that stuff had on that we spoke about uh, earlier. Mr. Garrett Dose the. Uh, the the godfather of European BMX. He uh, again he spoke a little about what we talked about, the differences from our times, you guys being heroes. Um so we've kind of touched on that, Garrett, but uh, big respect and uh, hi to you, Garrett. Um Richard Yeah Garrett um Garrett was really cool. He you know, he did a
1: lot of stuff. He did the IBM XF Hall of Fame that you know we're we're in a hall of fame that nobody really knows about. That was started in eighty one or eighty two, I think. And it was Stu and I, it was an de- induction ceremony at the Pontiac Silverdome. You know, right. that's a hall that's a Hall of Fame that nobody gives credit to too much, you know, but he was instrumental in putting that together and making that happen. Um the major pain thing and you know, it goes away in a week. I was really <laughs> good at what I was really good at at what I call scab management. Right. So because it would hurt like hell to go to a race with a scab and then you fall down on it and rip it off. So I would do everything. I would blow dry it and, you know, and, and, and I still, yeah, I still blow dry my scabs. Patty says, because (laughs) I want to, I don't want to have to rip a scab off. I'd rather, you know, fall and have another new injury on already dead skin. But so anyways, yeah, you can, if you blow dry it and I used to drive home from the races with my arm out the window to, to dry it and, you know, once you get it dry and then manage it, it it'll come off in like you know five and a half days.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I did the, the, the arm out of the window. I've done that one many times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Shout out to Garrett. He actually documents. You know, one of the few guys that's documented the history of BMX in Europe. So you guys, if you uh, you want to check that out, University of BMX definitely want to get on Garrett at some point. And I've said it numerous times, but oh. Garrett has so much knowledge and he's still got so much passion. He's done so much for so many people. Um, you know, both both in Europe, to all the great stuff he did with us, and he brought us to the U.S. And then Garrett was always instrumental in bringing you guys out to Europe as well, among putting on some of the most great events. So I uh, can't speak highly enough of Garrett. And if you listen to this, Garrett, we definitely want to get you on. Um, so i will just scroll scrolling more down here. We, you know, during that, we talked a little bit about, again, same thing that, that I'm as I'm going down. So it's still the same subject, but we're talking about the heroes, and yet you know the pros of 80s and 90s and today. Kenny Hunter made a good comment. I like what you said, Kenny. I'm not going to read it out because it's so long, but I did read it earlier a couple days ago, and uh, you make some very valued points as regards to the national teams and the riders, really, at mercy to riding for a national team and uh, having to do that path, uh, which is not so much as regards to, you know, um, a lot of these riders that are part of a national team that, um, you know, it's not really... They're not really... uh, push to, to to sell product, to promote sponsors. It's more about Olympic medals and, and so on. Again, another another podcast and stuff we've touched on many times. Um, so anyway, good, good points. Kenny Garrett, another one here from Garrett. Uh, Tim Knipe. I'm just going to name-check some of these. Harry Carleen, another great guy with lots of passion. He talks a little bit about the then and now. And, you know, obviously Carl was involved in magazines in the 90s and 80s guy as well. Some some good comments from him. Um so we've got here one from uh, Michael Wong uh, from uh, UK, lives in the US. George Costa spoke a lot on an interview in bmxweekly.com, so check that one out. Uh, stuff like social media, making it easier now for people. So, yeah, I guess it still talks about the saturation. I don't know the words saturation, but just the pros have easy access. You can see them all day long now online, so maybe not as much so when you do see them at a race. It's not as starstruck as, you know, stuff we've talked about with Harry. Um one thing I wanted to ask you, Harry, was uh, what would you say was your best year, like result-wise? Um,
1: you know, I—that's kind of—I I don't know how. I don't know. I mean, every year, every year had a highlight. I mean, obviously, you know, you make make good money, and that's a good year. But there's certain events that you want to do well at, and you know, magazine coverage was made the year even better. Um, probably, you know, when I went number two in both sanctions and I got a few more number twos and then won the master's title two years in a row. And, um, I just kind of always look for new reasons and new things to motivate to keep racing. Cause I, love to race i just i love racing still and even though you know i'm older and, and whatever it's still the 46 and over expert class is super competitive and if you're not on your game and you're not you know i at this point making the main for me is a realistic goal based on the guys that are in that class and so uh i don't know Um, the 2015 when patty and i went to oklahoma you know I'm a huge motocross guy, like I've said, and I, you know, the red plate on the motocross bikes, with you know, whenever the guys are running the red number one or whatever, I always wanted a red number one plate. So whatever that means, it meant that it meant something to me. Mm-hmm. And, an RO, and an ROC is a number one red plate. So I had Jeremy Martin's number one red plate on my refrigerator the entire year, yeah, and cool. all I did was stare at that red plate. And so when we went to Oklahoma it was you know i had lane 8 main event and you know to win that plate was that was probably one of the highlights of my career only because Patty and i worked really hard for that event there was a lot going on we put together our own program and it was in the current era and you know just so it, it, every year it, things kind of better the year before or the time before so you know um i'm always looking forward to the next one
0: mm-hmm. uh, a few more name checks here we've got mike crit plate mike um so i just want to say hi to him kevin Tomko. what up mike kevin tomco down there in uh, georgia um, yeah i
1: think he uh i think he slid out in front of me at stockton
0: okay you guys in a pro right yeah i
1: think he asked um if I remember that, there was actually a picture. I was on Dirtworks, I think.
0: And he would have been and, on uh, when he was with Bill, cool. right?
1: I'm not sure. Caston, maybe. Caston, he was on Caston. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And he he slid out in the first turn, and a lot of guys went down, I went down. But that was like that was just racing. I mean, you're going in hot. It's not like you're going in to take anybody out. You just went in hot, hot first pro, money, dollar signs, and
0: front tire washed. Mm hmm. Uh, one miles Kirby, he says, do you think the freestyle guys have maybe got a better grip on social media than maybe the races? I don't know how deep you go into following everybody online, Harry. I
1: think, you know what the guys are doing? The freestyle guys are doing like the Huntington beach crew, those guys and that whole crew, they do a really good job of promoting themselves and, you know as far as a writer promoting a writer they 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 don't do a very good job of promoting themselves there's groups out there that do it for them like you know old school whatever group they're part of but you know i was just looking at a jeremy i was just mentioned this yesterday um to patty and nathan i went on and cuz i follow jeremy mcgrath yeah
0: you know? yeah me too yeah and, yeah right so
1: i looked at his facebook page and he's got 627 thousand one hundred and twenty two likes
0: still huge following didn't he
1: <laughs> right and so i don't know what you know an athlete page you know what connor fields
0: has but or anybody else what uh, so that interested me
1: yesterday when i saw that
0: well the, the, the demographics of any rate again i think uh... Excluding Mariana John, the demographics of racing of a racer, you know uh, old school, mid school or, or current school is just so small you go look at street skating, and you know some of those guys just i don't know if the words' in the middle of the pack, but I mean they have huge numbers you know just you're uh, some of the guys that don't even compete hundreds of thousands of followers and uh yeah, I just think like uh, we're just in a small little uh, small little bubble you know on the race side you know right um, all very right. much so. Another one here. I'll give a shout out to uh, Suti Kevin Sutmola, Kevin. So I hope he's doing well. Um, what up, Kevin? And then we got one here, Sean. Uh, I don't know how to say his last name. I think he's an announcer, Pinsky. I think he's an East Coast guy. Uh, not going to lie, that's right. he said just a huge fan. He says uh, he so- puts you up there with President Reagan, or uh, even higher than that, from uh, seeing you in the magazines back in the day. Um, thank you sean thank you sean here's a good one from uh, i like this question because i want to know the answer as well from todd wilson i know todd uh see him on instagram he says what happened to uh willie hudner he was uh, the little guy on diamond back right yeah um i don't know eddie i
1: th- think knows where all the guys are and what they're doing i don't know where willie is i yeah. just know of the guys that you know, or we're on Facebook and like Wharton and Farside and Copeland and Palmer and Hayden and Davis, obviously, and Hort and Mike Horton and those guys. So, but I don't know where Hoobner is.
0: Yeah, and then um, you know that what I, I, I obviously was a little kid, and uh, but I do remember the Jag World Championships on uh, Tropicon Hotel. He wins, and then does like a front flip over the finish line, like eats it. But, uh, I don't know if you ever saw that. It was pretty cool. That's the first why I remember the guy's name. I think then he got on diamond back after that. Um, so, Sean Duncan, Hippie Sean. He says, best, biggest, craziest after-race purchase. Um, was you known for uh, buying, mm. spending your money, Harry? No. No you know, houses and uh-uh. cars. You didn't have the Porsches and all that, did you?
1: No. huh? Never. You didn't go that I route. Think I, no, I think I bought Sandy Finkelman's white, or, uh, 280 ZX from him, but it was a great deal, and he wanted to get a 300 or something. So, no, cool. never did.
0: All right, so Oliver Prosper, do you know Oliver Prosper is Christophe's friend from France? Says yes, he touched on Bercy. obviously. What do you remember about Bercy, Harry? Incredible, 80, 85 incredible. right? 85, 84, 85 again,
1: absolutely incredible event. It sold out however many 9,000 screaming kids, families. Whatever. It was insane. And to this day, we don't understand why that can't be duplicated here on some, you know, some way, somehow. It just that was that was
0: insane. The French have always, always known how to put on a show and uh, they still do. You know, I think in uh, in any sport, but in in BMX, have always known how to get people in to watch, you know. So something always cool about racing in France. Yeah, it was. It was, and they produce some pretty good riders too. Always, yeah, and continue to, <laughs> obviously, yeah. with uh, with Joris and Sylvain Andre, just just to name a few of current top guys. Um, we've got a list of questions here from Chris Carter. He was uh, he's racing in again. He's a UK guy from the eighties. Um, big Harry, you know, big fan. He says, and some great questions. I can't ask them all, Chris, but I will ask one which I'm interested in as well. Uh, do you miss using your front brake? And I'll add to that. Why did you actually have a front brake, Harry? Is that for, I might have read an interview, so you could kind of for the turns and stuff, kind of slow down. Well, Yeah, the the tracks that ABA built back in the day, they almost all
1: of them had a flat 180 degree turn, where there there was nothing but flat turn, and so um, I would run and being a motocross guy. I loved the ability, and then riding at Honda Hills, I designed certain sections up there to where as soon as you landed, you had to get on the brakes to make a turn in order to do another section. And, and um, you know, and I actually won the ESPN Pro Spectacular series that we did where we had to run three motos, two semis, and three mains in a day, and it was all for TV. Um, I got second in the series, but I made I made a winning pass by using my front brake. There was a gnarly, like, downhill left flat corner with, two jumps before it. So I went up the inside and was able to get on the brakes over the two jumps. And the other guys were like outside because they only had one brake. And I passed two guys there or something and ended up winning the overall. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the tracks, you know, like now you don't touch your brakes unless you're correcting a problem that you developed in the air or whatever. But, you know, now the brakes are kind of useless
0: yeah yeah, and you ran a front mudguard for a while as well just just recalling some pictures right yeah
1: you know again free toby guy.
0: henderson fender right right i think toby got that idea from me he no, did yeah he <laughs> should have patterned it <laughs> so but yeah it was, it was good stuff good stuff why did you use that harry
1: the fender yeah i don't know motocross looked funny looked cool looked. it was fun for a while
0: people are still talking about it 30 years. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have to ask this one, Harry, because a lot of people have asked on here. So uh, again, it's another question from Chris Carter, and I actually spoke to him at the bike show, and he said everything's cool now. But Chris Moller, what's the deal? You two guys cool now, and uh, you guys have definitely had some heated moments over the years. Um, give us some uh, stories and comments on the great Chris Moeller. Uh It was fun. <laughs>
1: I mean, seriously, the guy is he makes an incredible bike and I, I think, you know, I, um, he was a BMX action test rider. And I think what had happened was I sent back some bad comments about him and how he was testing one of the diamondback bikes. And I actually told, uh, Al Stonehouse, who was my boss at the time. And I think, al stonehouse passed that to bmx action and then it it got to chris and i think that's what started it i think but yeah we had whenever he got a chance he took me out um which you know looking back on it now it was fun it was he brings a lot of color to the sport he obviously has done a lot for dirt jumping and freestyle and Are we fine now? Yeah, he's cool. I saw I saw him at the bike show, and you know, anytime we see him, we chat, and it's cool that he's racing again and he's doing good. I see, you know, I make sure I watch him race because he's kind of in the older group now, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so I can see him race. But one of the coolest moments was uh, in Vegas at the national. TJ Lavin, um, him and him and I were talking, and Lavin is great friends with Moeller. Great friends with Moeller. So. I don't know how we got on the topic of Chris and I, but I gave him the whole Reno story All when right. Chris and I got, when Chris and I got in the fight the and, shoe, you know, I, I punched Chris in the back of the head and then he, Chris <laughs> took his shoe off and hit me in the back of the head. <laughs> so, and, and so, uh, TJ took off one of his shoes and then him, TJ and I took a picture and uh, TJ cool. told, yeah. And it, so it posted up and yeah, so everything's cool. I, I mean, think, it, it, and, 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 And I heard a story that, and I don't even remember this, but in the, back in the day, the ABA, you would, you would do your racing for the weekend and then you go to the payout line and then, uh, Mar would issue you all your checks that you did. Moto wins, contingency money, whatever you did, you would get all your checks. And I guess he grabbed one of my checks (laughs) and I heard that it was framed in his office. I, I heard that story. And, uh, I mean I I never missed the check but I, I just I heard that story I don't know We, need to, a, any, we just... need to hunt
0: that we need that back Chris if you're listening Harry needs this check yeah. back. Yeah it's probably voided
1: by now though I think it was three, I think it was for 300 bucks
0: I mean that's just like just legendary stories though just like when you can go to Ronnie Anderson's stories with Pete and, and a lot of you guys I mean you just don't hear that stuff to obviously then you can move into the the 90s with you know Levesque, Purse, and Romero and just so many Good stories and good good stuff. Maybe there is stories now that we're just not hearing them or we're not getting told them. You know, there probably is good stories. They're just not getting documented or told, which is uh, which is a shame because hopefully history is being made. You know, now as well. You know, it just needs to be maybe, maybe documented so you know down the road them guys can laugh and joke about it. You know,
1: there has to be because those guys are on such a level doing what they're doing and training at such a, a level and the professionalism that has evolved just to get to the kink first on these supercross tracks because you got to get to the kink right off the gate and the work that these guys do to, to do that is amazing and how much effort it takes to you know you can we always talked about it throughout the day you can make up by doing a lot of training you can make up a bike length or six five six inches down the first straightaway or to a first jump pretty quickly, but it's that last inch that you need to have your bar ahead of another guy's bar. But at the first jump, that's where the dedication and the commitment comes in going to bed early, all that stuff you to make up that last inch is a lot of time and effort. And so these guys, you know, all the guys
0: are amazing. So we got one and here. girls, Got one here, Mike Jenna and I know I've pronounced your last name wrong, Mike. I'm sorry, I apologize, but it's still great to see you riding and your backyard track. I follow all this stuff online and still big on the the posh and uh, caddy trails. So I'm sure you know, Mike. He says, when you got to come and ride some loops with them guys out there? A Big fan and uh, you're a legend. I need. To,
1: I would love to ride trails, but you know, like we were talking about, just getting over to Chula Vista and riding. You know, at a comfort level to where you can do what you know you would feel good when you did it. I, I would really need to bone up
0: on my, you know, sheep hill skills. Yeah, the sound of posh made me scared even in the nineties. You know, when you, you saw all that stuff. But I, I, I think there's mellow parts. I see, you know, one of my riders, uh, Peyton Rider, she she rides on the East Coast, and I saw some some footage of her. She rides trails and stuff, and it seems like it doesn't. Uh, there's some mellow parts as well. But it's cool to see there's still great scene out there so much in the magazines, especially in the nineties. Um, so anyway, shout out to Mike. Um, so we've got another one here from Mike Harrison. He, let's talk this a little bit about Leary. So he asked about Leary Dirtworks, obviously, uh, your bike brand that you did in, in, in the nineties. Tell us a little bit about that. And Mike actually says, uh, how fast did you actually go on the GPV? Uh,
1: the Dirtworks thing, it was, it was good. We were, you know, the frame business is, is tough to get in and we were at a point where, um, I had to make a decision. Um, we, a daughter was on a way, on a way, Brianna, my daughter, and there, we, you know, not having a real job, not having, you know, the insurance and all the stuff that as a family you need to have, um, in order to, you know, be successful in that regard, I made a decision to get a job. And that's when I started working for Marzoki, and then, you know, did the whole fork thing with them and, and so on. Um, what was the other question? How fast did you go on the
0: GPV? Uh, not as fast as Tommy Brackens. Tommy won, there did he? <laughs> the Palm Springs one?
1: Uh, actually, Dan Hannabrink. Oh, okay. You know,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. The great Dan I Hannebrink. went.
1: I went 86 miles an hour. That I think scary. those guys went
0: 92. Wow. Yeah, I can't believe was... nobody, watching that footage, I can't believe nobody got killed.
1: Oh, yeah. Steve Bemke was close. He was went it? off in the he went off in the rocks down at the last end. And then Eddie, he was running like a sew up rear tire. And you had to go through this um, like a, a ticket taking box like there was a building in the middle of the road and a lane on each side. And there was a bump in it. And you were already going about 50 when you had to narrow up to go through this. And Eddie dragged his brake. And I was behind him when he did it. And the tire blew. So Eddie actually started crashing as he was going through this little section where it was only like one car wide. And he broke his hand and, you know, we were in the middle of the ASPN series at that time. So it really it really cost him. But yeah, it was crazy. I had 50 or 60 pounds of weights bolted in the bottom of a hot street hot streak freestyle bike that was turned upside down.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was leg- legendary, uh, that footage, and the the magazines covered it pretty good for that 10 minutes that that sport was going on. How long did it last? It didn't last very long, did it? 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. about a 10-minute sport.
1: They did a couple races here in Glendor off GMR, Glendora Mount Road, and, which is a really fun hill to come down. Um, there's a bunch of hairpins, and I washed out in one of the corners and fell, but I think it was in third
0: or fourth. Then you guys anyways, did this. Was it Formula Bikes? That next thing that you guys did in the ads?
1: Yeah, and then Diamondback and Haro created, tried to create its their own little niche market with these. You know, Haro's bike was called the Dart, and then ours was the Formula One, and that was it. Formula you know, two, and then yeah. yeah, and they put on these series, and and Eddie and I we committed to go race the entire series that the USA that ABA put
0: on. Tinker Juarez showed up and, and, so it was a laps, other. like, just laps around an oval or something?
1: It was actually a road course. It was a small version of a road course and real tight turns and, you know, it'd be 12 laps. You know what I mean? And, and so that was fun. I mean, I got on the cover of a Bicycle Dealer Showcase, which was um, the magazine at the time that went to all the dealers in America, which on a Formula One bike which was a really
0: cool cover that nobody's ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. I no, never saw that. Uh, you guys get paid for that. Was you like prize money and stuff or?
1: Yeah, it was, it was put into our, our, um, contract. Like, okay, you're going to go, you're going to do these BMX races and you're going to do these formula one races. And if you, you know, podium or get a picture, or that's how mine was, you would get money. So it, it made it worth it a while. And because, and also it was, it was great training. I mean, to go out there and race a tinker or the guys that—that's what they got paid to go do. You—you you suffered for ten minutes. You know, I mean, it—it it wasn't.
0: A lot of time. It wasn't.
1: Yeah, it wasn't detrimental to going to a national the next weekend. So, it, it was really a great way to kind
0: of substitute training. Yeah, that's one from Glenn. Caught right. he says, "How many sets of signature turbo cranks did you actually snap? If you did snap a lot, maybe."
1: Uh, I never broke a pair. Uh, the plates would pop off. You know, the little turbo plate. On yes. The tri- yes. I would. You know, I mean, I'm. I was blessed. I could drive and go get boxes of them. I could make a call and have them UPSed out, and I made sure that I had tires, wheels cranks forks all that stuff in my garage so that you know i could always you know my big thing i would have a new chain and new freewheel and new tires every every weekend especially the rear tire back in the day because the aba used this expanded metal starting gate and it went to all the races because it was an indoor event and it would get wore out and the comp 3 tires would spin because the knobs were so big the diamondback comp 2 knobbies were small enough to fit in the little expanded metal holes. So I didn't spin as much as the other guys.
0: Huh. So we've got one here, Jamie Miller. Um, he says, do you have any uh, DBs as a collector? And obviously lots of people do around the world. Do you actually have a, a little museum yourself? or um, No. No?
1: No, I don't own one Diamondback. The guy sitting next to me, Nathan, he has, how many do you have? 31? Diamondbacks. Yeah, 27.
0: Now. 27. Wow, that's awesome. Back. I think the Aussies are kind of like the British, aren't they? Very big on the the collecting and the old school uh, heritage and and fans for you guys because you you've been over to Australia, right? Just to do some of these old school events.
1: Yeah, Patty and I, Brett. Patty and I went to Australia last year. Yes, we did. And uh, it was, Thank and you. actually, it was. Uh, it started, I think, a conversation between Patty and Nathan. Uh, just. You know, we were selling a Diamondback jersey or whatever, and the conversation started. And you know, we were brought over for, huh? Negotiated. Patty negotiated. She's the, um,
0: no, she's the agent. Uh,
1: yeah, she she handled it for me. That's good. And that's a whole another topic that you guys could talk about too. Is like agents for these guys. But we were flown over two weeks, expense paid to uh, got to go to Sydney, and then we went to the Hearst Bridge bike show and we were there during the entire show and you know got to present the awards and signed autographs and raised money and and did a lot of things um that kind of started that whole movement of bringing you know bob Harrell went this year Stu thompson went this year perry kramer's there now um you know and then next year is the big 40 year anniversary of bmx in australia and i know there's plans being made for a great you know, kind of event to take place. And so who knows what's going to
0: happen? It's kind of like in England, they have the rad event and it's you're just watching it online. Is it, you know, the weekends like they have gatherings all over the place, but they have like a big yearly, um, I'm sure you've seen it, but it just seems like it's just growing and growing. And uh, yeah, just a huge old school movement. I actually went to the, uh, I think you was there, Harry, but you'd already, uh, I went early on, me and my friend Paul Roberts went over to the uh, Whitt- Whittier old school event last Saturday morning and Mm -hmm. uh, we was talking to uh, Martin, I can't say his last name, the guy that wrote for GT, Eddie Fiola's buddy, uh, the Flatland guy, 80s guy. Caprio. Yeah, we was talking to him, and he was telling exactly what you said, like how them guys now are like traveling around the world doing these old school events, and they've got a cool little niche, you know, getting to travel and hang out with, you know, super fans and and just talk BMX and drink some beer for the weekend. He said it's super rad, you know?
1: Yeah, you get to, you know, and it's free. And if you negotiate a deal right, you get paid to be there. Yeah, I showed up uh, around eleven thirty or 12 o'clock just in time to race the old school race on flat
0: pedals. Okay, and I then, missed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We was at the parking lot and left about 1 o'clock.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was fun. It was good. And then uh, the
0: the uh, G2, G2 guys put
1: together a raffle to raffle off a bike that the money went to help the hurricane victims in Florida – Right. So eight, eight guys were in the gate, and you drew in a ticket, and then you raced for that person's ticket. So then I won, and some guy named Mark won the cruiser. So it was fun.
0: Yeah, nice. All right, I'm going to name check a few more people here. Uh, Lenny Taylor, Mike Brown, Steve Brown, um, Jason Crouch. I think Jason runs a track out in Texas. Um, Dave Gaddis gives you a shout-out, says uh, the pros were superheroes. In your time, uh, big shout out to him, uh, Pat Robinson. He's a UK guy. It's an 80s guy that's racing again. Hiya! He says, "Was it true when you came to Redditch in '82 for the Anglo-American race? Uh, you got to race the British guys." Well, we kind of talked about the Anglo-American, but shout out to Pat, good guy. Uh, JD, we spoke, we asked him his questions. Hope you got your answer there, Jason, about uh, the worlds in Whistler. Um, Just scrolling down here, Matthew Raymer talks a little bit about the uh, 1980 ABA Grands in uh, Oklahoma Fairgrounds. Do you remember much about that?
1: Yeah. It was, you know, back in the day there was a jump on each straightaway and that was pretty much it. There was a flat turn in the middle and, you know, it was, but it was just as competitive, if not, you know, just as competitive as now,
0: Mm -hmm. all relative to the times mm-hmm uh, Greg Sutherland, we've already asked one of your questions, so we'll go by that one. Greg, shout out and happy birthday to again, I just spoke about him. Paul Roberts, my buddy, it's his birthday today, which will probably be tomorrow by the time this is posted. So happy birthday. Happy birthday, Paul. Mike Wong, he says, Do you have any uh, Leary Dirtworks frames lying around? So you don't have any diamond backs. Do you have any Leary Dirtworks? I have one bike that I raced that's at the Havasu house sitting in the garage. Now the guys that make the supercross track, so they stole your name then. Is that Dirt Works as well, or isn't it? The guys that uh, do the tracks, every, aren't they called Dirt Works, the track makers for supercross? It's the same name, spelt different. Okay, and there was a Dirt Works team back in the day, right? Is that where you got the name from, or the seventy? Is that mm. was, was the BMX team Dirtworks or something? Seventies? No, it
1: was Dirt Master.
0: Oh, Dirt Master. Okay, that's it. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, that answered that, Nigel. Uh, John Beattie, old-school guy from London. Um, what would you have changed about your training, uh, training regime or rest take techniques during the 80s in order to gain an advantage uh, over the uh, the pro competition? So I guess if you could go back and change your training, would you doing too much of this? I mean, I think I rode too much or maybe didn't, you know. I think we can all pick at our old train in what we know now with technology and, you know, just, um, yeah, what we learned over the years. What would, what would you think maybe you did too much of or not enough of back in the day? Because you was always known for a, a hard worker, right, Harry? Probably too much. Right. I think probably we all, too much. That's you know, probably all of us did that, right? Yeah, I think,
1: you know, uh, one day too much. And, you know, and, and back then we were traveling 40 weekends a year. And, you know, when we first started rolling with this Dimeback thing, and, you know, you'd fly out Friday morning and fly back Monday morning, and then you'd squeeze in your, you know, travel and takes it out of you. And so you would get back and put a bike together and ride, train, go to Honda Hills, do your routine, get to the tracks, do your gates, take your bike back part and, you know, put it in the box. And, you know, fatigue, mental as well as physical, became as much. Of your own personal competition as the guys you were racing against. Mm -hmm.
0: All right, so let's just name check a few more: Um, Robert Smart, Sherman Smith, Jason Forsman, um, Cashy Allen, um, Dennis Foster. Says, what about those ramps in the parking lot, Ontario Moto Speedway? Is that some jumps and stuff used to guys do?
1: Yeah, my friend and I, Pete Collins, the guy I used to ride with and take pictures with, we had this brilliant idea that um, back in the day there was uh, to do to put on a sideshow at drag racing events. So, in metal shop, I we made these quarter-inch steel plates that we would strap on to the bottom of our motocross boots, and we would get we would stand on them and, and get drug up to 70 miles an hour down down the road, and let go. And then slide on these steel shoes, you know, at night with sparks, like 60 feet of sparks blowing off behind us, you know, at 70 miles an hour standing on steel shoes with just a helmet and gloves and a jersey on. And then we wanted to – we built these ramps, and we were going to jump cars on bicycles. So we – I jumped eight cars, I think, out there. Wow. Got pulled up to speed and – and. Uh, Is there any footage of that anywhere? Pictures or my buddy Pete, he has—I'm sure he does—all the negatives of everything that we've ever taken.
0: You got to do a book, Harry. He,
1: I can't find the guy. Even social media, I put it out there to try and find this guy, Pete Collins, and I can't find him. And I know he has thousands of pictures of me growing up on a bike and oh my gosh, and sliding on steel shoes and you know jumping cars on you know ramps in front of his house practicing and. You know, on a monoshock that Dennis Foster and I built, he we each built one. So, yeah.
0: I think there's a lot of people like that. I know in England we talk about a little bit now of some of those early days photographers. You know, you see video footage. And when you're watching that video footage, you see other people with cameras and stuff, you know, documenting the racing. Or, you know, the guy's just riding. It's like, God, can you get hold of some of these people? You know, some of these people have got just pure, just just gold really, you know um yeah. yeah and that's and that's the beauty of digital now
1: is that stuff you can't really lose unless you know you your
0: computer blows up or whatever but
1: that's the you know the sad thing in film is it's easy to lose that stuff
0: yeah, no, like I say I just just got some uh spoke earlier some some pictures from the anglo american in eighty two and I know Tim March is connected with some of the uh, early english Magazine guys, I guess he's got all kinds of archives that he's uh, slowly sorting out. So I I just love it when I see stuff that's not been, you know, you see stuff gets recycled so much on Facebook, some of these pictures, but it's cool to see stuff that's never been, uh, when it comes out for the first time, you know. And like I say, with guys like you, you guys have so much stuff. Um, Yeah, I'm sure you could write a whole, whole book with just what that guy's got, you know. Yeah, which, you know, is possible. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I know we you talked a bit about. It. So tell yeah, as we spoke last week at the uh, the beach house, the Hall of Fame weekend, you talked about some of the projects that you got going now. Can you uh, tell us a bit more of that, or are you kind of is that all under wraps?
1: Uh, we got stuff coming. It should be available to look at next week. Website, all the little things that are coming together. As you know, it, it's it's slow because we we want to do it. <laughs> Patty wants to, you know, we need to, we want to do it right and she's a perfectionist. And so uh, websites come in. We just got some different things we want to do. And a lot of that happened when we were in Australia um, a year ago. I mean, when we left there, you really, none of us really understand the impact that, you know, like myself or Astu or until you go. Until you go – let me just say us. Until we went to Australia and we experienced the the hype and everything that we had done that we really didn't plan on doing, the racing, the the magazines and all that stuff, you really don't understand the full impact that you've had on people's lives back then and how much they still feel – that you did for them back when they were a kid until we were in the middle of it talking to, you know, there was a three hour line signing autographs at the Hurstbridge show. And we got to talk to every one of those people and really, you know, we just heard how much it cool, how cool it was that what we did in back in the day. And, you know, everybody, you know, Stu was there and, and all those guys and you and what we did, we really didn't plan to do it for a lot of these people. Um, and so that, when we left there, we thought, you know, there's, there's something here that we need to really kind of polish and work on and do something with. And so that's what we're doing.
0: Cool. Um, good question here from um, Byron Friday. He says, after you retired from uh, competitive um, racing, uh, I guess for the first time around, you transitioned into brand manager for Diamondback. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about that? And obviously, Brian, Byron um, also talked a little bit about, and I've seen the images. Uh, you was one of the pioneer, I don't know if that's the word, pioneer guys to slalom, and you actually beat John Tomac. I've seen pictures of you at Big Bear racing uh, slalom, I think, with Toby and, uh, yeah, Tomac. So you want to hit on those two things?
1: Yeah, it was um, – those were cool days. Byron was the product manager for the mountain bike at the time, and then when I retired BMX, I rolled in the product manager as for – Byron was a mountain bike guy. And then I rolled in as the BMX guy. And so we got to travel to Taiwan, Japan, China. We, we got to travel a lot together and it was fun. We developed bikes and, you know, and it was hard, but it was fun. And, um, <laughs> there's, it's a funny story. You know, I, there was a slalom thing starting. And so, um, built a slalom bike out of, uh, a BMX frame. And, um, it together went to mammoth and everybody was there i mean anybody that was anybody was mountain bike guys you know dave herbald and tomac and uh gwayne crowsdale dave Cullihan was there and so i qualified number one out of 32 so i was and you know, i think dave Callahan qualified second we and i had to beat tomac to get to the final and In the final, I was leading Cully, and I went into a corner and folded my front wheel in half. And so the first run, you you can only lose by a certain amount. So I was 1.5 seconds down going into the second run. And I had him covered. I had Cully covered. And I beat him by 1.2 seconds in the second run. And it wasn't enough. So he got the world championship. And I got the silver medal for that. And then the next year I got the bronze. And I don't know where Cully. We went to Durango and I raced a world championship. So I got the bronze in slalom. But I'll never remember um, when mountain bike racing was starting, um, my boss, Mike Bobrick, brought me in the Diamondback and says, we want you to start racing mountain bikes. <laughs> and I thought, no, I'm going to be a nice guy. I don't want to race mountain bikes. And I should have raced mountain bikes.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you see the route that uh, Cully and obviously then Lopes and King and them guys went on to that really, yeah, lu- lucrative. Um, hey, m- d- hey Dale. Is. Yeah. My phone is About
1: to quickly, blow up. quickly going downhill.
0: All right. Well, let's wrap this up. We're near the end of the thread anyway. So I just... Okay. You Are, you plugging it? Are we plugging you in? Uh, I have to unplug because I got an iPhone 7 and you can't... Yeah. We'll, run well, if you've got head. a couple minutes, then let's wrap this up, then, uh, Harry. I think we're near, we, the, we're near the end of the thread. Um, Go. Quick name checks out then. Sorry, guys. We, a lot of this stuff's been covered, but uh, Michael Freeman, Jason Chang, uh, Darren May, Jamie Riley, my buddy in England, Gary Wallace, Jason Boness, John Barford, Sean Rose, good guy. Hi, Sean. Craig Rose, his brother, two of my friends from England. They've made comments. Sadie Warden. Um, again harry we 'll have to uh continue this at another time or just do another one down the road um let 's wrap it up yeah, last last thoughts closing thoughts
1: i you know it 's really hard to say where the sport is going I think it 's in really good hands um, you know you you get guys like you um, did we ever think that way back in the day we would be still that i would still be racing and being involved in in the sport and and you know a lot of people think or say there's people that say yeah you're living in the past or whatever you're doing i go i i argue that point because if it's been your life for 43 years how is how are you living in the past if that's what you've done your entire life. It's what you do. It's your life. It's my livelihood. It's my, it's what Patty and I, that's how we met. Patty raced and, and we, you know, she raced up in Northern California and we got connected and, and met each other over a a live webcast from the Grands. And so you just, you just don't know how things and why, people talk negative about something that really kind of shaped who we are and the friends we have you know like you know um, I went to high school I started in kindergarten and graduated high school with about 15 of the same people you know and I don't even know they really knew who they were don't know who where they are but you know you can I've been in a sport for 43 years 45 years now and lifelong friends common in so many different things and continually making new friends and, you know, teaching kids how to ride and, and, and watching families and parents enjoy the fruits of putting in hard work and getting that first, first place trophy that they did all the training for that, you know, and you the, you get the text, and you or you see them at a race, and you hand them a number plate, and you know it's something that they cherish and for a while. And um, if we continue to work and strive for the love of what we have in front of us, there's no way it can turn out bad.
0: Harry, it's been an honor talking to you. We went, you know, I said, let's do an hour, hour, hour and 15. Uh, We've gone two hours, and I I know we could do another two very easily. So um, we'll definitely do another one down the road. Thank you again. Uh, If anybody needs to get hold of you, follow you, uh, where Um, can we get you? uh,
1: First off, thank you, Dale. Thank you for what you do for the sport, and thank everybody. I know Patty's been showing me, you know, there's like 125 comments, 386 likes, to all you guys out there that do this and follow the sport and contribute online and all those questions. Thank you for following what we did and what we're doing. Um, you know, there's, I have a Facebook page. There's Harry Leary, number tw- uh, 25, uh, Instagram. We're not that tuned into social media, but you can go to Harry Leary, um, Facebook and, and it's going to be Harry Turbo Leary, um, fa- um, webpage coming. So, it's it's happening. Stay tuned. We got a lot of great things coming. Patty and I and um, HLT four um, is <laughs> stay tuned. Thank oh, you, Dale.
0: Awesome. Thanks, guys, and we'll see everybody right. on the next podcast. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Thanks for
1: listening to High Low, the BMX podcast show. We'll catch you next time.